5: This episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Bones Coffee, the official presenting sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast. Nick, now we've had the coffee, all right? Before, we lied, we lied. We didn't have the coffee, we thought it was good. Now we've had it, it's
4: delicious as hell, but tell the people why they should be ordering Bones Coffee. I'm gonna keep this short because I, you all know I'm a coffee nerd. Uh, let me put it like this, it's smooth and delicious and flavorful like you can one of those three often falls apart when we talk when you talk about coffee folks my style is i grind beans the moment of got the hot water going french press mike's got one now because i refuse to let him live that keurig life anymore although the keurig version of bones is legit it's amazing it's they they translate really well but freshly ground coffee what bones is doing with their flavors and their single origin coffees are amazing and their shipping is fantastic. It gets there quickly. But most importantly, folks, it's great coffee at a great price, but the price gets a little better. Why is that, Mike?
5: That's right. Because if you go to bonescoffee.com right now, and they've been featured everywhere from Forbes, Women's Health to Hello Giggles, they have all of this fantastic coffee, 12 ounce bags, sample packs, single serve, K cups, like Nick mentioned. I offered, I ordered, excuse me, the Cinnabon sin S-I-N-N, so a clever play on words there and i'm telling you this coffee in the k cup machine smells delicious and it tastes good i am not bsing you when i say this you go to bonescoffee.com right now you order whatever you want they got gears they got mugs apparel tote bags hats in addition to fantastic coffee like nick just mentioned and then at checkout little promo code box type in Can We Please Talk, all one word, you're going to get 15% off your first order just like that. Head to BonesCoffee.com right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Stavari on the program today the confirmation hearing is underway for soon-to-be justice katanji brown jackson nick and i will get into all the exchanges with judge jackson and the recent questions from senators plus later on in the program alex clement from g0 media will be on he has been covering everything russia ukraine for g0 media and their newsletter you can check out all their work at g0media.com some great stuff and he recently did an article About what Russians actually think of the war and some independent polling that has happened over there. So, more on that later on. Plus, later on in our last segment, we will talk about the recent Deshaun Watson contract signing. If you haven't been following this story out of the NFL, Deshaun Watson accused of sexual allegations of over 22 women, uh, but nothing criminally has been found yet. And he recently signed the richest contract potentially in NFL history. Nick and I will get into that later on in the program. But first, I say hello to the dashing, the daring, Mr. Nix of the talented, Mr. Nix of uh,
4: some, some would argue, maybe not, but I will argue he is. If you you're referring to that one clown with the, uh, review, that's, that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. again, as I said, any critique or critic, uh, again, RSS feed, find mm-hmm. a partner, get a microphone, that's right. get set up. I've done it through audacity, YouTube. It's all, it's, it's easy. Clearly. Super easy. Um, yeah, obviously. Uh, I'm how good. are you? I'm, yeah. I'm good, man. It's, you know, it's a mix of feelings. Uh, it's been a little, it's been a little all over the place, you know, as a sports fan, you know, Thursday, I think it was Thursday night was pretty wild with the Devonte Adams trade. You know, obviously Mike and I are big Raider fans. So it's been an interesting <clears throat> weekend and change for us, you know, between just big name players coming in and um, an organization that, that seems competent for the first time in a long time. I say all that, but then on the flip side, you know, and obviously Mike and I are going to talk more about the, um, the nominations hearing right now for Judge Jackson, but also, um, you know, with Deshaun Watson, it's, I'll say it like this, it's an interesting time to be a father of daughters. And yeah. I say this stressing that just because I happen to be a, a husband and a father to daughters does not necessarily mean that this should be enough evidence for me to say, believe women and recognize when women are treated in a way different than men. That's not the reason I I shouldn't need women in my life to prove this. Um, But I bring this up because what we're seeing with these hearings, what we're seeing with, you know, Watson signing is a continuing narrative about how, how we view women differently as a society, not just in the U S but arguably on the planet. And that, you know, it leaves me a feeling a sort of way. You know, the great thing about the Raiders, obviously, and that's where you know speaks to one part of my essence, I guess. But then this other stuff comes up and you're, you're reminded of a of an interesting time we live in. You know, we're going to play a soundbite from somebody who kind of echoed somebody very big in the media space that
5: echoed something similar. I want to get to that at, at the end of our last segment. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's get into our first segment, Nick, and the nomination hearings that are underway right now over the last couple of days for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, obviously, she is the latest nominee after a Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. President Biden obviously seeking a replacement, trying to get somebody confirmed, you know, in his first year in office here. And he nominated Judge Brown Jackson. Let's tell you a little bit about Judge Jackson. She was on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Uh, DC Circuit. Uh, she was the vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. She's been a public defender. A Supreme Court clerk as well. She actually served as Justice Breyer's law clerk once upon a time. Um, so she's got a rich history. And not only that, she worked, like I mentioned, that U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit is kind of seen as a springboard to the next stop, which is you know the Supreme Court. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University. She attended Harvard Law School. I mean, just right there. You say the word Harvard. I mean, come on. Uh, but listen, here's a couple of things about Judge Jackson. As a matter of fact, let's play a clip from Judge Jackson talking about w- what she feels being a judge, uh, what's important for her in terms of uh, d- deciding on the law and cases involving you know, different precedent and what she feels how she should apply the law. Take a listen to this.
0: Over the course of my uh, almost decade on the bench, I have developed Uh, a methodology that I use um, in order to ensure that I am ruling impartially and that I am adhering to the limits on my judicial authority. Uh, I am acutely aware that as a judge in our system, I have limited power and um, I am trying in every case to stay in my lane. And so what I do um, is I essentially follow three steps. The first step is when I get a case, I ensure that I am proceeding from a position of neutrality. Um, This means that you you, you, you get a case and it's about something and it's submitted by certain parties. I am clearing my mind of any preconceived notions about how the case might come out, I'm setting aside any personal views. Uh, It's very important that judges rule without fear or favor. The second step is once I've um, cleared the decks, so to speak, in this way, um, I am able to receive all of the appropriate inputs for the case. Um, That is the party's arguments. They've written briefs. Um, Sometimes we have a hearing, sometimes we hear from other parties, Miki in a case. And then there's the factual record. I am evaluating all of the facts from various perspectives. I think my experience, uh, all of the various experiences that I've had, really helps me uh, at this stage to see the perspectives of all of the parties and to understand their arguments.
5: All right, so you heard it there, straight uh, from the horse's mouth, as they like to say. Um, Nick, I know you have been watching a little bit of this hearing. It's happened over the last couple of days, and so on day one, you know, each of the senators kind of gave like an introduction. I I never know why they do this, but they give kind of like a five-minute spiel about you know, pontificating about whatever it is that they're going to want to ask them on the next day, and the next day after that. Judge Jackson gave an opening statement, you know, thanking a bunch of people for how she's gotten on the road to where she is right now. Uh, obviously, she was nominated by President Obama back once upon a time uh, in 2013, I believe, uh, actually in 2012. And she was confirmed in 2013. But so these hearings kind of take over the next couple of days and you get senators that get to ask some of their questions or get into some of the asinine questions. And and some of the different uh, political arguments, and how Republicans are really great at being unified on one thing. I want to point that out later on. But you've been watching some of this hearing. Um, give me a little bit of impressions of what she just said, but then also takeaways from um, her being a judge, her being nominated, the court, you know, still being in a 6 3 conservative majority. Give me some takeaways.
4: Yeah, I, I immediately contrast uh, Judge Jackson's response. <clears throat> to what we saw in the trial of Kyle, uh, of Kyle Rittenhouse, a judge who was very, very adamant about the treatment that the defendant was going to get. Um, you know, We've talked about this on the show, but you know, insisting that the word victim not be used. It was very controlling. And it was interesting because Judge Jackson said as a judge that she doesn't have that much power. You know, she's stressing the fact that she's impartial. She's got to make sure that the rule of law is carried out in the court system, but ultimately living with a jury. So she has a very interesting, she has a very contrasting view to what a judge's role is. One that makes a whole lot of sense, especially in contrast to what we saw in the written house case. I also think of the judge, Mike, that you and I tore apart respectfully Um who had proceed over the I forget her name, but the officer who had mistaken a taser for a gun. Yeah, Kim Kim Potter case. Yep. Thank you. Um, and that judge's reaction, you know, tearing up during sentencing and ultimately giving a lighter sentence. Again, the impartiality there, the lack thereof. This was sympathy playing a role in a person who deserved none. Uh, at least in my opinion. So I I think of those, you know, recent examples in contrast to how Judge Jackson sees her role in. It seems like that's what you would strive for, you know. Especially in the highest court of, of the land, someone who's going to listen to both sides, who's going to clear the deck. I really liked her point there, and leave and beginning from a place of impartiality. Um, you know, I think we'll talk more about this, Mike. But it, it is hard to contrast, or it's not hard, but I find myself frustrated because seeing the line of questions, seeing how she's come off, which I think has been excellent. And just the contrast of the kinds of questions she's getting versus what we saw with Judge Barrett, who will all be honest here has no business being on the court. Like, he does not have the experience to be on the court, and that was pretty much a political appointee. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who most you know famously told us he loves beer, um, and basically had a tantrum like my children would uh, on you know at his hearing. And I see already in Judge Jackson, a very different approach, and the one that seems to make up. The kind of judge that we would want to have, unfortunately, she's getting you know basically a line of questions that really have nothing to do with her ability to be to be a member of the court, to be a successful member of the court. And it is, to your point, once again, the talking points that Republicans have. It is going to be the continued uh, pursuit of you know raising critical race theory as the boogeyman. It's Republicans, as Mike said, do a really good job of staying on message. And right now, folks. You are going to hear that repeatedly. You know We're going to keep asking questions of, of the Black judge, shockingly, of critical race theory. And it calls into question how serious these questions are. And I don't yeah. think they are. I think it's just po- it's political points. And once again, we have another hearing, and this is true in other congressional hearings, where you just have politicians grandstanding. This isn't really about the work of, of vetting a good justice or whether this justice is deserving to be nominated, but it's really just Ted Cruz and other people preening you know trying to make a name for themselves and get the talking points out. Yeah, well, let's get to a couple
5: of those because um and, and you mentioned, you know, obviously I have been watching a lot of these hearings. I want to say since probably the 2012 2013, you know, C-SPAN always puts these on, but then sometimes you get some of the major networks specifically around Supreme Court justice nominees where they'll have, you know, continuous coverage of it and it kind of supplanted everything that's been happening with Russia and Ukraine. Um so some of the Uh, members of the aisle on the Republican side have decided to, and I will use these words because you know, if it comes from me, it's a little bit sterner. Like it is a little bit of political theater, right? You know, when you had Kavanaugh's hearing, right, you're going to get the Democratic side hitting him on the talking points, right? Whether it's about Uh, At the time, uh, I forget the woman's name. I know her last name is Ford. uh, The woman that was accusing him of sexual assault back in the day at a party, Uh, whether it's Amy Comey Barrett and her stance on abortion. Right. They always want to figure out if if Roe v. Wade is settled law. They asked Judge Jackson that question. But obviously you, you touched on a couple of things about the boogeyman. So let's get into two of them. Marsha Blackburn, the senator out of Tennessee, had a couple of, uh, I don't know if you call them questions. This is her opening statement, and this is what she said she planned on asking Judge Jackson when she was recently on Fox & Friends.
6: She serves on a school board and has lauded progressive education. Now, for some of the women that I talk to, that is a red flag. They want answers on that. So we'll, as I said yesterday in my opening, we will discuss this with her. You have praised the 1619 Project, which argues the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. And you have made clear that you believe judges must consider critical race theory when deciding how to sentence criminal defendants. Is it your personal hidden agenda to incorporate critical race theory into our legal system? These are answers that the American people need to know.
5: So you heard a little bit there. That's the first one. The second one, I don't know if I really want to touch it because uh, poor choice of words. But Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, you know, brought up maybe six to seven cases of child pornography that uh, Judge Jackson sat on and gave sentences that were less than what the prosecution had recommended, and also uh, both of them, prosecution recommendation and. Judge Jackson's sentencing were far less than what the federal guidelines are around cases that involve people having child pornography on their laptops and whatever. I don't know if I want to get into those exchanges because there's a lot stoked in QAnon stuff and some of these questions like, you know, they were asking, and I just, I don't know if I even want to get into that. Let's get into the, the Marsha Blackburn stuff because you just heard her there talking about critical race theory. We all know what critical race theory is. If you don't have, if you don't know what it is. You can go back and listen to our episode with Dr. Kirton, but obviously it's a, it's a college level course that's taught. And sometimes it's taught obviously to law students as well, like she was bringing up there, but, um, give me some of your impressions. You, you heard Senator Blackburn there on Fox news, you know, the talking point notes right in her hand, ready to ask these questions. Her first, her first point was that judge Jackson is on a school board, which I mean, that's a bad thing. I maybe I don't know. I, I never heard of that. But it um, well,
4: de- depends on yeah, depends on what way this person leans on school board. This is what the Republicans will like to do, is yeah you know, they the GOP to their credit has already identified their targets. Uh, they will make it a point to continue to raise concerns. About the boogeyman of uh, critical race theory, which again is not taught in a K twelve setting, so with the Black Justice, uh, they're going to go ahead and bring this up, um, Mike, or to those who are not looking at us on screen. I have a copy of the sixty of the sixteen nineteen project. I have read some of it. Uh, I've also listened to the podcast that was uh, hosted through the New York Times. Um, the argument that America is a fundamentally racist country is not part of the premise. It is shedding light to another view. Um, well, actually, shedding light to an element of American history that we don't really fo- focus on, which is really the le- which is the legacy of slavery. So, say um, Senator Blackburn's ignorant comments, I would say she's probably not read the book. Um, actually, not probably she hasn't read the book. And you know, this idea that we're going to go ahead and keep playing up this fear, and I would ask anyone what exactly about critical race theory makes you scared. And when you share that with me, I want you to show me where in school curriculum. Is what's raising that that ire, that concern for you. And it doesn't exist. And it really simply says, you're just you're scared of the you're scared of the history of people of color being that becoming part of the social dialogue in, in the country. And that's cool. Like you want to, you wanna continue, you know, having a whitewashed view of American history. Do you? But Please at least be, honest, be at least intellectually honest and just say you don't want to hear about the history of people of color uh, in this country as it relates to what actually happened. That's fine, um, but I think to raise this to raise it up during a hearing is just telling me that we've already know what the Republican play is here, and it's going to be the same one that we're going to see in the midterms. We saw it with the Virginia election last year. We're going to keep raising this awareness, especially in the suburbs where white women disproportionately voted for, you know, supported Governor Youngkin because it is a concern among the suburbs, allegedly, um, that this is this evil thing is allegedly being taught. Again, it's not. Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm frustrated, but I shouldn't be. I'm not shocked that Senator Blackburn from Tennessee, by the way, same state that recently had a school board that decided to ban the book, that decided to ban Mouse. I have a copy of it somewhere here. Um, a... Really helpful way of understanding the the Holocaust, you know, as in graphic novel format. So, should I be shocked that another representative of Tennessee decides to play up a a BS riddled narrative about the history of race in America? No, not at all. Yeah, I don't have any follow up on the Marshall Blackburn
5: stuff. I'm not touching that. I mean, we we've covered CRT on this program. We've had, you know, again, I I referenced you back to that Mike Emanuel episode that we did, his second appearance on the program, talking about, you know, Landon County and how he interviewed parents, school board officials, but show, show me evidence, show me evidence of CRT being taught in a K to 12 setting. And these parents are like, I can't, but I'm telling you that they're being sent home with textbooks and things like that. And, and he's like, all right, let me see them. And just like this dead air right now, they couldn't produce them. So um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, at some point somebody has got to have the The smoking gun. I've made that reference before. Okay. You know what? I've changed my mind just within you talking right now. I do want to play the exchange between, um, and again, I I mentioned this before. It was Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz that were really asking her poignant questions, uh, depending upon how you interpreted it. This is Josh Hawley,
4: who was also okay with Jan 6, right? Correct. Right. Okay, cool. It's one one point of clarification. Correct. With the fist pump to the the crowd outside. And this is the same senator from Texas who abandoned his state when at a environmental environmental outlier in a freeze out that same same senator same same guy was at the airport cool
5: um also funny enough i was reading something that ted cruz was recently stuck in montana at the airport i don't know if you read this story i I saw the video
1: what
4: what, he he pulled the do you know who i am
5: yeah he was (laughs) yelling to tsa like do you know who i am so i mean i'm not gonna your
4: daughters barely know who you
5: are (laughs) i don't want to you know what i'm not commenting on that. Listen. Let's play the exchange, Josh Hawley uh, and Judge Jackson. Now, again, I want to give context. There's probably five to seven cases that Ted Cruz introduced um, when he had his five minutes and he was asking about the reduced sentences from each one. Remember, there's federal guidelines for what should be prosecuted or at least what the the, uh, defendant should be prosecuted to. Normally, it's like 97 to 120 months, whatever that translates, maybe eight to 10 years. Uh, And then prosecutors can take those guidelines and then make their own sentencing recommendation. And then ultimately that falls onto the judge to make the recommendation. In each case, she did a little bit lower or in sometimes way less lower in five to seven cases that he outlined. The same thing with Josh Hawley. But here's the exchange that kind of caught everybody's ire on Twitter between Josh Hawley and Judge Jackson uh, in relation to whether or not. He feels he was asking, do you feel like you're filling your judicial responsibility by by reducing these sentences so drastically? So take a listen
0: to this. This, in my view, was an unusual case that had a number of factors that the defendant was pointing out, that the government was pointing out, that the probation office was pointing out. And I sent this 18 year old to three months in federal prison under circumstances that were presented in this case because I wanted him to understand that what he had done was harmful, that what he had done was unlawful, that what he had done violated the law and, and needed to be punished, not only by prison, but also by all of the other things that the law requires of a judge who is sentencing in this area.
1: But, but, Judge, with all due respect, and I'm—I—I—I I, I tell you what—I'll be direct with you. I am questioning your discretion, and your judgment. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm not questioning you as a person. I'm not questioning your excellence as a judge, frankly. But you said it. You had discretion, and I—that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm questioning how you used your discretion in these cases, and to me, to take a guy who's 18 years old, who has what the government says is an extremely large collection of prepubescent pornography, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, we're talking about, I mean, gobs of hours of of time here that he has, and you say to him what? That you say that, well, you know, it was was just a collection. I mean, he was just viewing it, and it was, you know, essentially they were his peers. You say to him that he's not a pedophile. I don't know how you know that. I don't know why that's relevant to the guidelines, but maybe it is. You say he's not a pedophile. you say that you're very sorry for him and what he suffered and then you give him three months when frankly a liberal prosecutor is asking for two full years i mean it does seem like an extraordinary case to me it would bother me no matter what it really bothers me when in every case child porn case you've had you've had discretion you've sentenced below the guidelines and below the government's recommendation
5: before you speak nick The senator from, I'm I'm sure, you know, this senator from Hawaii, um, Maisie Hirono, I believe I'm saying her name correctly. So she went right after Josh Hawley. And so we're going to get on, we're going to talk about Hawley's uh, uh, pontificating there in a second. But she went right after Hawley and she asked Judge Jackson this, and I thought this was This is what's wrong with American politics because it's hypocrisy on both sides. And if you don't recognize it, like I mentioned in other episodes, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. Um, Take a listen to what the senator from Hawaii asked Judge Jackson in relation to just what Holly said about cases involving child pornography that she presided over. Take a listen.
7: See, there was an article recently that highlighted the fact that many of President Trump's circuit court nominees, who were previously district court judges, had also issued below-guideline sentencing to child pornography cases. Judge Ralph Erickson, who was confirmed to the Eighth Circuit in 2017, with support from every Republican member of this committee who was serving in the Senate at the time, and there are at least eleven cases where he sentenced people to below guideline sentences. Does that surprise you? It does not, Senator. I'm not sure if you know Judge Erickson, but do you have any reason to believe he's a soft on child pornography based on these sentences? I don't have any reason to believe that. Do you think my Republican colleagues are soft on child pornography just because they voted for Judge Erickson to become a federal appellate judge even after he issued these 11 sentences?
0: Senator, I'm not in a position to um, evaluate whether your your colleagues are soft on crime because of their votes. I have no reason to believe that.
4: Someone got receipts. Right, right.
5: So, that okay. So I want to get back to the the larger point because I was talking about this with my wife and, you know, folks, 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 when I when I put on this voice, you know, I'm being serious. Child pornography is bad. Okay. Can we all agree that child pornography- And that's your porno- public
4: service announcement from right, Canada-based exactly. exactly. stock.
5: And here's the thing. When Marie, I was thinking about this before we hopped on to talk about this. When Marie Harf was on the program, State Department spokesperson, and she's also worked for a couple of representatives, sitting house members right now, like Seth Moulton, who will be on the program in the coming weeks. um, She mentioned about going into the midterms, calling out the BS, but she mentioned it more in a way of being direct in terms of language, right? In that instance right there, we need to be more direct you got the receipts but the language is not direct. And sometimes it feels like Democrats they want to they want to take the high road but still show the receipts when you should literally flail the receipts and drop kick them onto your opponent, right? Because and Marie mentioned this on the on the program, Republicans don't care. They're unified in the playbook, they're very direct, right? And while the script may sound the same, it's been vetted and it's been handed down and no one veers from it, right? You believe CRT, progressive, uh, liberal, you know, communist, all the buzzwords. We've mentioned it all the time. And and that was the thing. Like, I, I love that she brought up the fact that there was another judge under the previous administration that got through with cases that were questionable in terms of sentencing. Now, again, if you don't get this and you could easily say, Hey, Mike, Nick, you guys are not lawyers. You guys are not even judges. Yeah, no shit. But here's what I will say. It's a, it's a hierarchy tree. Okay. There's federal guidelines for cases involving sexual assault or, you know, or child pornography, things like that, because they're investigated at the federal level. And then there's recommendations for sentencing that are handed down from the federal guidelines that go to prosecutors. Prosecutors then take that and give those recommendations, or they can follow them. Or, again, guidelines and recommendations, just like the CDC, right? Hey, please wear a mask, not wear a mask or you're dead. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, guidelines and recommendations, same thing. Prosecutors take that to the judge. And in each of, and, and again, seven cases that she worked on, she went below, a little bit below, or, you know, pretty much below. In one case, it was 24 months, was the recommendation, and she did three months, like she was talking about in the exchange with Josh Hawley. Um, But the same thing in reverse, right? That Republican judge nominated from Trump admin, same thing, same amount of cases that he presided over that were questionable in terms of sentencing, because why you're not getting the full totality When the senators are talking about it, you're not, you don't know time served. You don't know what the probationary court has recommended in terms of sentencing. So it could be something where, Hey, they get six months in jail and then they get five years of probation and they have to do regular check-ins and they get restrictions in terms of laptops and services. Uh, They have obviously the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, where you, you, you can't be by a school or by, you know, places where children do reside, right? Like uh, I forget, oh, restraining order, excuse me. So all of that goes into sentencing. And that was something that she had explained to Holly. I don't remember if it was in that clip, but it was in another exchange where she's like, I don't have the case in front of me. You did some extensive research. That's great. Kudos to you. Uh, Took out the talking points to ask me. But at the end of the day, you're not looking at the totality of what sentencing goes into it. You've got to factor in the victims. you got to factor in whatever statements they make. you got to factor in the defendant's. Right And and whatever age range they're in, uh, in terms of like, is this their first offense? Is this their seventh offense? You're not calculating time served. You're not calculating the probationary court. You're not calculating a mitigating set of factors. And so my argument earlier today with my wife was, and not that she was on one side or the other, it was more of like people that listen to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz now are falling for that because they hear 24 months, she gave him three that's their takeaways. It's similar to when you read news articles. Everyone's always taught, read the first line of each paragraph. You, you'll get every you'll get the entire summation. You don't have to read the whole thing. It's, it's, it, it's an indicator of where we are as a society. People don't read the entire thing. They just comb through it. And that was her point, but she didn't make it as strenuously as I'm doing it right now. Again, hey, Mike, tougher for you. I mean, easier for you to say with a microphone, just talking to your friend, Than it is for her, you know, sitting in a room with two, 300 people and a bunch of sitting members of Congress and being asked questions. But I think going forward, uh, and again, not that she's, uh, Supreme Court justices are supposed to be impartial. So I love that she said that at the beginning, that the clip that we played at the top of the show, but that is the whole point of what's happening now in terms of the midterms and messaging. We have to start being a little bit more direct because one side of the aisle is insanely direct. And they're direct, whether it has racial undertones or it doesn't, they're direct, they're unified. They have a convincing message. The other side is fumbling the words. They know what they want to say, but they're fumbling the opportunity to say it because the takeaways go over people's heads. Just like I said there, the takeaway that people will listen to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and both of those guys will be on Tucker Carlson later on. And then the few people that maybe listen to this that also watch Tucker Carlson, what are you doing? But they'll listen to that and they'll say 24 months she only gave three. She supports child pornography and that's not it. So I want to get your takeaways on on some of that exchange there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's.
4: What a break. <laughs> Now, I get what I where I sit with this is I don't agree with Senator Hawley, obviously. Um, I mean, I say toss this kid in for the full time. That seems pretty creepy with the child pornography. But the thing about the judge is she's looking at this mountain of evidence, she's understanding the different elements that we're going into sentencing. So I have to trust her. Now, Mike, the reason I paused is because I think I said earlier that I was thinking about that judge. you know, in the case with the, um, the cop with the taser and the gun mixed up you know I was co- I was trying to contrast mentally in my head like what's the difference here and the difference seems to be that in that case the judge you know had a just sentence at a you know much lower at a much lower time but also there was no other elements time served other mitigating factors. this was just simply a lowered sentence and based on her emotional reaction it seems like she was very sympathetic to the police officer in this case, I don't it doesn't seem to be a matter of sympathy as it is more about understanding that there's other elements of punishment that have already happened. not to mention the fact that beyond prison we're also talking about probation and the other things you mentioned before that there's other components to this. I mean, there's other elements of the sentencing so I I, I understand it. Um, but it is interesting that we are I, I really like that other the center from Hawaii's point. To what you were saying about directness, I wish she had been very more direct about, you know, Senator Hawley, you supported that candidate. Is it just simply a matter of the fact that that candidate came under the came under the support of a president that you backed and not this current president so much so that you were willing to you know, support those who decided to raid the Capitol building on January 6th? I think that would have been fair. I think the reason that the, the senator from Hawaii doesn't do that, because that makes it more about Josh Hawley. And this is we're here for Judge Jackson. That, that's important. But it was an indirect way of saying, I've got receipts on all of you people, and none of you had anything to say for a Republican backed judge. So I, I agree with you, but I also understand that considering the environment we're in, the Democrats end up taking the high road. The problem is that they do it all too often at the expense of being the one who throws the punches and who makes that point very clearly, as we've said before, about CRT and other of these specters that Republicans like to drum up. That the only way to counter it is to be direct about it. Yeah.
5: Listen, um, I, I highly recommend going forward, folks. Always tune in as best as you can to a confirmation hearing. They're they're literally fun to watch the political theater that happens in this country. As a sitting senator of Congress, gets five to ten minutes to create whatever slides and shows they want to do, whatever questions they want to ask, whether they're nonsensical or they're, you know, softballs or they're actually real questions about how somebody would preside over a case or law or settled law, um, and not so much just you know, SCOTUS confirmation hearings. I'm talking about other ones too, for other cabinet positions, et cetera, et cetera. I highly recommend it. This is part of what we talked about overall being civically engaged and kind of understanding um, what's happening in society. There's no better way to do it. You don't got to watch the whole 11 hours. (laughs) I don't recommend that, but for sure, pull some sound bites. Uh, When we come back after the break, Alex Clement from G Zero Media is going to be joining us. We're going to get into Russia and Ukraine, his latest articles. Alex, after the break. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by UseCardboardBoxes.com. Nick, a new sponsor to the show, UseCardboardBoxes.com. What are you using? when, When you guys moved to Easton, Pennsylvania, how did you get boxes and pack everything up? Did you pay movers? Take me through that process
4: yeah we, we we did pay movers um so we went through, well i mean again we've done a couple of moves so most recently to to pennsylvania yeah we had to go through that process you know get movers and they bring their own boxes and yeah it's not it's not the greatest thing i gotta be honest um so you know when you mentioned this organization like i started reading up on them it was fascinating folks First and foremost, with used cardboard boxes on the website, it's telling you one of the most important data points. Currently, 5,461,100 trees saved because of the work of this organization. Um, I'm blown away by it, so I'm excited to use them. And we have all kinds of stuff. We're not moving anytime soon, but I definitely need things to get boxed up and donate or just move around the house. So I'm excited to use them. Listen, I've used, I personally used used
5: cardboard boxes com. I got turned on to them by a friend. They're very easy to use. You go onto their website and you you can check out the kits, the boxes. They come with supplies. So I ordered like one of the, the early packages of just moving boxes, right? So they'll send you like, you know, either wardrobe moving boxes, uh, large moving boxes, medium moving boxes, lar- extra large ones, whatever sizes that you need for your house, your apartment, whatever it is, you go to use and you're able to right away, get cardboard boxes sent out to you, the supplies like the packing tape, uh, the ability to, to write on the boxes so that way the movers know what room this is going to go to. If you go to our show note links right now, uh, all you got to see is you'll see a link for used cardboard boxes right in there and you click on that link and at checkout, you're going to enter the promo code new customer. All one word, new customer. At checkout, you're going to get 5% off of that purchase. Head to usecardboardboxes.com today. All right. Like we mentioned, Alex Clement from G Zero Media is joining us to talk about everything Russia Ukraine related. Alex, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk. Exactly. Uh, and can we please talk to you, uh, Alex? <laughs> Emphasis on the please. Always on brand, this guy. Right. Well, remember, can we talk? It's a Jewish women's podcast. So uh, listen, Fair enough. Alex, a question for you right off the top, because there was obviously some breaking news as we're recording tonight for people listening Thursday morning. Um, obviously, the U.S. now has declared what Russia is doing in the region and war crimes that have happened in this invasion on Ukraine. President Biden's over there now. He just recently landed as of this taping in Belgium meeting with some foreign leaders in the coming days. Um, I want to get some of your takeaways just on both of them, just right off the bat, since it's recently happening and breaking as we're recording this. First, your thoughts on the U.S. declaring the war crimes that have been committed in this invasion on Ukraine. And then also what you expect out of President Biden's trip meeting with world leaders out in Belgium.
3: Well, I mean, uh, the US calling out other countries for war crimes, obviously it sends a certain message. Uh, War crimes when they are committed are horrible, but war crimes as far as they're being prosecuted, depends on who's willing to take them to court and process them and what they're willing to do about them, right? I mean, the history of of prosecuting war crimes is not a great one, I have to say. Um, Also, it bears noting that the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court and neither is Russia. So it's, it's not clear. I mean, what Russia is doing in Ukraine uh, certainly rises to the level of war crimes, if we're, you know, to believe what we've been seeing. Um, I'm not sure that the actual impact of this is that great beyond the U.S. signaling, hey, Russia's doing some really horrible things. The people in the world who are inclined to believe that and see what they're seeing from Ukraine will say, yes, you know, we already knew that. Um, those who are inclined to deny what's going on in Ukraine will probably deny it all the same. I'm not sure it moves things forward all that much. Um, As far as Biden going to Europe this week, I think there's two important things he's trying to accomplish. One is, you know, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we saw this tremendous and really surprisingly fast um, kind of you know, uh, sort of unified response from Europe and the United States, right? It had taken years of sort of these anguished arguments about how much can we sanction Russia? Is are we are we provoking Putin or not provoking Putin? Is it going to go too far? Will it stop him from doing what he's doing in Ukraine? You know, after they after Russia invaded Ukraine, the re, the response was surprisingly swift and surprisingly unified in terms of these packages of sanctions um, on on Russia. But I think a big question that the uh, Americans and Europeans need to work out is, are there any circumstances under which they might roll back some sanctions, right? I mean, there's various moving pieces if you're trying to think about what could be a settlement for this conflict, right? You have to get the Russians to agree to certain things and compromise to certain things. You have to get the Ukrainians to agree to certain things and make certain compromises. But the elephant in the room for all of that is, okay, if that happens, is the West or Europe and the United States prepared to roll back some sanctions on the Russian regime? So I think that's something that, 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 that Biden's going to want to talk a lot about with European leaders. I think there's also, you know, the Europeans have a number of key meetings coming up with China in the next couple of weeks. And I think there's also going to be a lot going on behind the scenes in Europe where the Europeans and Americans are trying to sort of get on the same page about a unified front, if such a thing is possible, against against Beijing. So I think those are the two things that, that you're going to hear a lot about in the wake of Biden's trip.
4: Alex, there was an article that you had recently put out around um, trying to make sense of Russian polling data. Like, what are we learning from the country, but also understanding important context as to what does it mean to gain insights from from citizens in Russia? What um, I'll use the word blinders in this case, you know, from those in the more rural areas versus uh, younger audiences in the city for our audience, Alex, just what would people make sense of? Because at face value to hear Russian polling data in a country Of what feels like a totalitarian regime how do you trust insights from citizens but from your article what what should we make sense of um, in terms of what that information is telling us and also contextually what differences are we seeing between a younger generation of russians versus those whose information is more is coming more from a state level perspective
3: it's it's a great question um and it's a tough question to answer Let's start with what we know from the sociologists who are doing opinion polling in Russia right now. Uh, and there's some caveats to that that I'll get to, but what what the, the pollsters who are doing the work say is that about 60% of the population from their studies supports uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, there are a couple of caveats to that. One is uh, the those opinions divide a lot by different demographics, right? So, as you mentioned, the older populations who tend to live in smaller cities, who tend to get their news primarily from television rather than from uh, rather than from uh, from social media or online sources, Um, those types of people tend to be much more supportive of the state narrative, much more kind of nationalistic in their outlook to begin with. And that's where you have the really kind of um, the the real basis of support for for the invasion. Um, You also have big cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow are obviously the two biggest ones, but there are other, you know, other cities of more than a million people in Russia, where you find a different invasion, uh, uh, or at least up until recently, you had a, a fairly different information environment where you had a younger population, people more getting their news more from online sources, from social media, reading foreign press. Uh, uh to the extent that they that that they can or have interest in and that in those places you ha- you already had a sort of the nucleus of opposition to Putin's government and, and regime, right? These are the people who were going out in the streets in 2011 and 2012. These are the people who have gone out in protests, you know, for political reasons ever since. Um, obviously less and less frequently as the laws have gotten, have gotten tighter. So you really do have this kind of bifurcated thing, not unfamiliar to an American audience in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you know, you have people who follow a certain TV narrative about things older, kind of more, you know, less well off, lower education levels um, tend to have the more the more hardline views. Um, so that's one big caveat is that it's split. Um, the biggest caveat, as you alluded to, is in a country where uh, the narrative is so controlled on state media mainly television, and where um, since the war started, uh, almost all of the social media sources have been shuttered, right? Facebook's been closed, Twitter's been closed, Instagram's been closed, Telegram still thrives in Russia, um, but most of the other ones have been closed, you know, and they have passed laws that say you can go to jail for up to 15 years for spreading misinformation about the war, right? And their, their idea of misinformation about the war is that you call it a war, right? Because Officially, you're supposed to call it a special operation or a special military operation, right? So, given all of that, how much can you even trust what's coming out of what people even telling opinion polls? If you call someone up, you think they're going to answer honestly? And the question I put this question to, um, to the head of one of the polling agents, the, the last independent polling agency in Russia, and he said, Look, it depends what question you're trying to answer. If you're trying to use polling, in an authoritarian society to answer what, you know, Ivan Ivanovich, right? Joe Blogs, sitting at his kitchen table thinks about the regime. You're not going to learn that from polling data because it is true that Ivan Ivanovich is going to be scared or is going to self-censor his views. So as far as what he thinks in his heart of hearts, when he's at home cursing, you know, maybe he's sitting at his kitchen table, cursing Vladimir Putin, maybe he's not, you're not gonna find that out from polling. What you are gonna find out from polling is how comfortable is Ivan Ivanovich about acting in opposition to the government in public when he has to answer a question about it, right? And that's an important distinction because it does tell you a lot that, um, you know, that a majority of the population, whether because they're scared or because they actually believe it, supports this war and supports this, um, what's going on. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, it's not just about this one war. I mean, there has been the information environment, the kind of um, the way that the government, particularly through, through through the television and state media, has been kind of creating this or, or inflaming this narrative of grievance against the West in general. And this idea that Ukraine in particular is a puppet of the West, is run by neo-Nazis, but somehow also, and this is very peculiar, but somehow also is like, you know, a Trojan horse for all kinds of horrific progressive ideas that are going to poison the civilizational purity of Russia. Like people really believe this stuff. There is a huge bedrock of this underlying worldview. So it's not just about whether people think the war is good or not. It grows out of this whole other thing, um, which is not just about, hey, do you support the war or not? Um, So, yeah, so it's, that was kind of a long answer, but I think the, um, the thing to bear in mind is that, yes, there is a lot of support in Russia. And even if that's because there is this information environment, that's still useful information. The one other thing I would say, though, is that you don't it's not necessary. It's not necessary to have a super closed information environment for there to be a huge amount of support for a very dumb war. Right. I mean, if you think back to 2003, 2004 in the United States, of the population supported the Iraq war in 2003, 2004. And that's, I don't mean that as a kind of like whataboutist kind of like field goal. I mean it just to make the point that there are forces at work when a country starts a war, there can be these jingoistic spasms that, that can happen irrespective of whether the state television is forcing people to think one thing or another, right? The United States is an open democracy you know, with a free press. And it, even in that situation, a huge number of people supported a war that was questionable at, at best and ended up in a lot of ways being a disaster.
4: Follow up to that, Alex, is, and it's interesting because, because you bring up, in from the, from the standpoint of a Russian citizen, social media actually is an opportunity to hear, if I heard you correctly, to actually see true information. Or objective information mm-hmm. to simply be a television watcher, as you had said, would be to consume state, to, to consume basic. I'll use the word propaganda to be simplistic here. Um, that's right. That seems in contrast to in the United States, sort of theoretically how we operate. But there is a, a growing swath of Americans that fall into this trap of fake news. Like that's a word we've heard a lot in this country. How do you sort of contrast or how do you explain to people that? In the US, because of the way the media is run, and it's really not all that influenced or maybe some networks more so than others by you know the White House, how that is in direct contrast to a country like Russia. And I imagine others, China maybe being another one of them, where that concept of being a consumer of actually televised news or newspapers, or what have you, is actually legitimate. And what social media may bring to the forefront may actually be toxic. Because in the US, it seems, Mike and I have talked about this on the show, where we would think the opposite. I mean, as an American, you would think what right. I'm consuming on television, I can be discerning. What I can read, you know, with a discerning eye, is right. probably more grounded in truth, in fact, than simply pulling things from social media. So I'm I'm stunned by the fact that you you just basically spun it on its head as it relates to Russia.
3: Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I I, I, I hadn't even thought of that. But but as you as you explain it, yeah, it is sort of bizarre. I guess. Um, one thing is that in Russia, the all the television stations now are state controlled right? When Putin came to power in two thousand, there were uh, various channels which were uh, under the control they weren't sort of I mean they were independent in the sense that they weren't controlled by the state, but they were they were controlled by powerful oligarchs who were you know, very keen uh, to use them for their own own advantage, right? Um, so one of the things that Putin, from Putin's perspective, was you know this the the um, the fact that oligarchs can run you know television stations and use them to advance their own political agendas, which they were, in fairness, doing throughout most of the '90s. That is a source of weakness for the state, and that needs to be stamped out, right? So, like from two thousand two, two thousand three onward, Putin made a big effort to bring this, the TV channels under direct or indirect state control. Today, uh, there's no television in Russia that is not state controlled. The last independent broadcaster was called TV Rain. Uh, they left uh, two weeks ago, uh, so they're they're not. There's basically TV is state controlled in Russia, and Um, about 75% of the Russian population says they get their news primarily from television. Again, if you look at the the age breakdown, it flips almost entirely. Once you're talking about people who are 18 to 30 or 18 to 35 there, it's like 30 or 40% say TV is the number one thing. 60% say the internet is. Um, So in Russia, the, you're not getting a multiple, a you're not getting a multiplicity of views on television and B uh, I mean, political views. And B, it's all coming really from one source. So um, and that source happens to be interested in shaping a very particular narrative uh, using, as, as you say, propaganda. So social media is by no means, you know, the angel in all of this in Russia. It's just that social media is the place where you can, if you seek it, get you know, that multiplicity of views on, on, on what's happening in any given story. I mean, state television in Russia is absolutely crazy these days. I was just watching last night. Um, there was literally a story where there's like, is like on the seven o'clock news, basically guy gets up and he has a big banner behind him. It says Satanist no, mercy mercenaries of Satan. Right. So I clicked on that, that, that looks interesting. And the guy's doing a whole standup about how there are satanic mercenaries fighting on behalf of the West in Ukraine, right? This is not like some fringe show. This is like the seven o'clock news. It's like, well, there's uh, satanic mercenaries fighting in Ukraine. And tomorrow in Moscow, it'll be 37 degrees with light showers. Like it was not framed as something great. It was just like, this is news. The okay. news is that there are Satanists in, in Ukraine. It's like PizzaGate gate
5: on
4: television.
3: I was going to say, so, yeah. so it's like, so That's it's like crazy.
5: Jesse waters on Fox news. Um, Alex. <laughs>
7: Dude, uh, I out. say that
5: I say that as a Fox News producer. we should also as a caveat explain that Alex speaks Russian so yeah. <laughs> watching it uh is way better than Nick and I or any, any maybe any of you listening because he knew what mm. was what was being said um Alex I want to ask you staying mm. on this misinformation uh campaign um uh, it's a it's a two parter and I'll get to the second part after your first response but you, you did something recently on what Russia is doing to ban certain words you mentioned even about, they won't call this an invasion or a war. They call it a special operation. We've seen Kremlin, you know, the say the same thing. It's trickling all the way down. But then I, I look at some of these numbers and some of the episodes that we've done in recent weeks as we update people in real time about the stats and data, you know, 15,000 Russian troops dead. I, if 15,000 american troops died there would be in any conflict over 3 weeks there would be massive protest here in the us and you're not other than the beginning part of this where you heard about the the early onset protests and the arrests you haven't seen any of that coming out of russia so i'm curious on your take of all of the information the way it's trickling down to consumer if you can continue to elaborate on Like what Russia is doing on banning certain words and coverage, but then also we can't confirm some of the stuff that the Ukrainian officials are saying. Like even people have been asked from Senate Intel committees, and I'll get to that in a second. But like, hey, fifteen thousand troops. Well, that number may be a little high, and it's like, how is it that high? How we're not getting actual information, and some of that is because you know we can't get people in and out of the country, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love to get your take on. This yeah. misinformation all across the board, but to a more bigger extent on the Russian side of this.
3: Well, look, I, th- I think the um, it's important to, to, re- to remember that right now you have a war between two countries that are very good at playing or have tried to play the kind of social media disinformation game. Right. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians have their own interest in inflating. Them. I mean, the Ukrainians have done. What they've done to fight back against Russia is absolutely extraordinary. From a moral perspective, there's 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 little room to doubt that, like, the Ukrainians are on the right side of this. Um, That doesn't mean that they don't have their own agenda on, you know, on spreading. I mean, I wouldn't say misinformation, but they have an interest in they have an interest in exaggerating the troop, you know, the troop losses by Russia, of course. Right. So it's hard to verify that stuff. It was interesting in one of the Russian, um, you know, state affiliated uh, online dailies. Uh, they accidentally published this figure that close to 10,000 Russian troops had had died uh, in, in the war so far, which, as you say, is an absolutely astounding number. I mean, forget like, you know, in, in the U.S. That, that's more, by the way, than the U.S. has lost in Iraq and Afghanistan combined in the past 20 years. Right. So the Russians have lost in 20 days, if that number's true, which, you know, the military analysts I look at say, say it seems reasonable. Russia has lost more in 20 days than America has lost in the past 20 years. Um, It would also be the largest troop loss for Russia since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s, right? I mean, add up all the casualties in the Chechen wars of the 1990s, all this stuff, still less than what they've lost in the past three weeks. So it's a very good question. How is that not bringing people out on the streets? Um, I think there's two things. One, the government has gone to extraordinary lengths to conceal those numbers. They're not openly reporting them, if one thing. They're making it difficult for uh, for press to report or find those numbers, right? Because again, there's a law that says if you're spreading fake news or disinformation about the war, you can go to jail for up to 15 years, right? So that is a very strong, coercive element Telling people, don't even go looking for this stuff because if you just, there's a lot of self censorship that goes on. I think it's also, you know, people don't want to talk about it if a relative has been killed in the war yet because they are scared of what can happen to them. I mean, I have a good friend, a good Russian friend in, in New York who has a relative who uh, her husband was killed in the war. And um he said uh, a, a journalist friend of ours said, hey w- would you mind if I if I rang her up to talk to her about that and he she said he said absolutely not there's there's no I don't even want to put my relatives in a position where they could get in trouble for talking about the actual death of a, of a family member right so I, I think you know on the one hand it tells you how um how much the, the government is doing to suppress this information but what that tells you is That's the thing the government is probably scared of most, right? The Russian government is not scared of like young tech hipsters in Moscow going out and protesting against a war that they don't like. What they are scared of is a large number of Russians, you know, those provincial Russians, Russians in the smaller cities, the the people who do support the war right now saying, Jesus, why why are our sons and husbands and brothers coming back in body bags? What, what's, what, what's actually going on in Ukraine, right? And if you think back, um, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, if your listeners will, will know this, but the Chechen wars in the, in the 90s, one of the, the biggest effort to stop those wars came from what were called committees of, so, of, uh, committees of soldiers' mothers, right? Who, who were like, you know, I mean, the, the image of the soldier's mother is a tremendously powerful one in any society, but particularly in Russia, because it goes back to like World War II stuff. There's a whole thing about that in russia and they organized and they exerted tremendous pressure on the government to stop the first chechen war even losing to the chechens basically that's the type of thing that i think really worries the the russian government right now if the news gets back from soldiers returning from the front either alive or transmitting what's happening on the front by arriving home in a body bag that's what they're worried about
4: pulling back a little bit on g0 alex as I, was look, as I was looking through the website, something that stood out to me was, I'll admit, I was a little ignorant because when I saw the name of the outlet, um, I tried to say like Gazero, Like I thought it was like, is that Russian? Like I'm not quite sure. Right. And right. then I read you know, the why of your organization. And I want you to just take a moment and sort of expand for us that concept because it seems to apply in this situation where, for everyone understanding, um, you know the G8 or the G7 like there's an idea of nations that theoretically rally together around a cause like that's the hopeful outcome for that summit and G0 seems to point the fact that there's really no leadership or there is leadership in the form of the US but as a result there's no global movement and I think you can apply that to the, the challenges of the environment and form of global warming, poverty. I mean, you name any global crisis, and there seems to be an absence of a unified front to attack that issue. Right. In your, estim- in your reporting, and just as you're taking all this in with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, does it also seem to be another example of sort of that G0 concept where our response is economic, but to the people in Ukraine, it's a question of like, we have people, we have tanks rolling through. The response from the rest of the world is what.
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean the the G zero concept is as, as you as you basically just explained is is the idea that look, that no one disputes that the United States is still the most powerful single country in the world, but it is certainly by comparison with you know, the heyday of American power in the ni- unipolar American power in the 1990s, it's certainly a lot harder for the US to get things done itself in the world and to rally coalitions uh, of other countries to, uh, to, to, to to get things done that that it wants. Again, whether you think the things that the US wants are good or bad is a separate story, but just the ability of the US to kind of convene uh, coalitions is is a, is a lot harder. And that has to do with a couple things, right? one thing is that the us lost a lot of cred- credibility after the iraq war in a lot of ways that sort of was sort of shook people's um you know other countries faith in 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 the uh in the purity of american attentions, let's say um i think also it's because you know there there are other rival power centers now that can that can do things the way that they want to maybe not on a global level yet but certainly in their own regions china of course is one of them right so there is this sense that um g0 is it, 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 it a g0 world as it's conceived in in in, in, the, in the in the in the in the kind of model that gives the company its name is a world where there is no single uh, kind of leadership that is able to rally the world to certain causes and many contestants to fill a growing vacuum of power, but no one that's really ready to kind of like assume it. And again, it's whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, plain people say actually a multipolar world might be, might be better for everybody. And that's a, that's a separate, you know, argument, but, um, but, but we certainly are, are heading towards a, a multipolar world in a lot of ways. Um, about Ukraine. Look, I, I think it's actually pretty, um, uh, the Ukraine crisis has, in some respects patched up a lot of the growing differences that had occurred between the u s. and Europe on a lot of things, and even within the European Union about a lot of things uh, in recent years. The question is, how long is that going to last? I mean, you know, the Europeans have gone along with pretty intense sanctions on Russia. Uh, but, you know, if the Russians decide to mess with Europeans with Europe's energy supply, you know, the pain can be felt quickly in Europe um, and the blowback for Russia can take longer to materialize. Right. I mean, the Russians can can is can Putin, who has virtually total control over his political system, can stifle dissent relatively easily. I mean, can he take a hit of a couple hundred billion dollars for six months or 12 months? Probably. Um, but can European democracies, which have to, you know, go, you know, have to deal with elections and deal with voter interests and grievances? Can they deal with, you know, another four or five points of inflation over the next year? I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a more open question than I think a lot of people are talking about. But who, who, On whose, whose side is time on in this kind of standoff between Russia and the West? Um, as far as whether the outside countries are going to do more to help Ukraine, You know, the Europeans and the uh, Americans are sending a huge amount of weaponry to the Ukrainians, which they have put to extraordinarily good use um, over the past uh, three weeks. And there's more of that coming. I think the limit on whether the U.S. or, or Europe would do more is the reality that Russia is a nuclear power. Right. Um, And there is a fear that if you get into a direct conflict with Russia, either by establishing a no-fly zone, which would essentially obligate NATO planes to shoot down Russian planes if they violate it, um, or some other direct confrontation with Russia, then all of a sudden you're on this potentially escalatory path to the worst thing imaginable, which is a intercontinental nuclear exchange. So I think that is probably, um, has more to do with kind of bounding the Western response, I'm using Western to refer to just the Europe and the United States, because there are Western countries who are in favor of the Russian position on what's going on. Um, but I think, I think that mutually assured destruction and nuclear warfare is probably doing more to restrain the Western response than the G-zero-ness of it all, which I think actually there's been more cohesion on this than I would have expected on anything six weeks ago.
5: Alex, before we let you go, um, I'm, I'm by the way, I'm glad you gave that historical reference about you know the Russian mothers because we had Marie Harf, the former State Department spokesperson and advisor to Secretary Kerry, on friend of the show, and she said something similar about Russian body bags coming home to mothers. And then I heard you know from the Senate Intel Committee, uh, Mark Warner, talking about that earlier today with on CNN with Wolf Blitzer, and it got me thinking about everybody's unified on. That's one way to stop this, right? Potentially, you know, if, if we go back historically, but how does this conflict end in your eyes? Put on a prognosticators hat. You know, you mentioned about inflation in European countries. There's a bunch of different mitigating factors here, but like, where do you see this finally netting out? Is it peace talks? Is it, you know, uh, in terms of both sides coming to some sort of agreement, you know, in terms of what the Russians want versus what the Ukrainians want? Where does this all shake out? When does it end? What, what do you think about all of this?
3: Boy, that's that's the toughest question in the world right now. Let, let me let me try and let me try and answer. I think the first thing is to even get there. We need to have a desire for this to end from all the relevant parties. Right. Uh, Russia, it's not clear to me that Vladimir Putin necessarily wants this to end yet. Um I think he would like to gain as much territory as possible, particularly in southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine. If it's impossible to take Kiev, which it may well be, fine. But I think he would like to at least open the book for peace talks or conflict resolution with as much of southern and eastern Ukraine under his dominion as possible. Uh, The Ukrainians, look, they're again as we've said i mean they are they've put up an absolutely historically heroic fight against a much larger army and inflicted just unimaginable casualties on it. i mean before this war started people thought it would be over in 3 or 4 days here we are a month later and the russians have 10,000 body bags and kiev is still standing um, you know clearly Z- president zelensky uh, has to be very careful about how much he pushes, you know, resisting the Russians and smashing them at all costs versus the humanitarian costs of an increasingly brutal and wanton, you know, wantonly destructive Russian campaign, right? I mean, that's always the challenge for you know leaders who are who are fighting back in in in, in cases like this. You don't want to be seen as pushing things so far that people start to say, my God, we can't take this anymore. We absolutely have to find a way out. So I think you know, Zelensky has floated some things that he might be willing to agree to, whether it's, you know, strategic neutrality of some kind or um, or some kind of Russian language rights, all these things. But I don't think the demand for a peace settlement as such is there yet on the Ukrainian side. And on the American and European side, I think that's one thing that, as we talked about at the top of the at the top of the, the top of the pod here, you know, the Europeans and Americans have to get together and say, under what circumstances will we lift sanctions? And I don't think there's a clear answer to that question either, right? If the fighting stops, does Russia get sanctions relief? Maybe, maybe not. If Russia agrees to relinquish, I don't know, 400 square miles of Ukraine, does that get them a sanctions relief for their banks and SWIFT? Like nobody knows the answers to these questions yet. Um, I would say, look. Things that seem very unlikely to me, I think it's very unlikely that the Ukrainians are going to fight the Russians all the way back out of southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine. I think in any peace talks or settlement talks, um, a significantly expanded Russian presence in southern and and eastern Ukraine from what it was in 2014, I think that's going to be on the table and probably as a baseline. Um, I I think there is a world in which you know, Ukraine becomes split in some ways. You have a, a Ukraine that Southern and Eastern Ukraine either becomes formally or informally part of Russia and the rest of Ukraine sort of forms its own thing and tries to take that thing westward, you know, joining the EU, potentially joining NATO one day. I think that's way, way off in the distance if it'll ever happen. Um but, uh, but I think the, you know, the, the, the two extreme outcomes, which is Russia is bloodied and beaten and driven all the way back across the Donbass into, into Russia, that's not going to happen. And I think it's also not going to happen that Russian tanks are going to roll all the way to Lviv and take over all of Ukraine. So I think some kind of halfway uncomfortable peace, frozen conflict is probably the best we can hope for.
5: Alex Clement, uh, check out his work at G Zero Media. Check out his Trump impression on Twitter. It is a must listen to. Maybe we'll, you know, we're running out of time, but you got to check that out. Follow him on social media. He's a great follow. Alex, we appreciate the time. You're welcome back on the pod anytime. The best of luck to you. I know you got a little one at home, just like I have a little one at home. So you're probably not sleeping. So you probably need to go to sleep. Uh, Get some rest, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Mike, Nick, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
5: All right, our thank yous there to Alex Clement, Uh, Nick. Before we sign off, I want to get into our final segment here. And you know, we we've done a couple sports topics from time to time. You know, you and I—that's kind of our wheelhouse in terms of talking about sports. I currently work in sports, but there was recent case that uh, well, didn't it's still ongoing. Deshaun Watson—if you don't know who he is—a former Houston Texan quarterback. He played for the Houston franchise. He was a star in college at, at Clemson University. And uh, last year did not play the entire season, uh, had some contract disputes, uh, didn't like the coach who was hired in Houston. And then during that season of sitting out, there were some allegations of sexual assault and misconduct. 22 women came out and accused Deshaun Watson from some people that worked at massage parlors, uh, alleged that he forced two women to perform oral sex. Um, you know, he groped four women. He kissed another woman inappropriate. Again, 18 of these 22 active civil suits right now accuse Watson of inappropriately touching women. Um, so a criminal investigation that happened, the Houston Police Department was involved with a bunch of these different women. They f- the grand jury recently convened about a week and a half ago, and no criminal charges have been brought up so far on Watson. Why is this making news now? Obviously, you know an NFL player that's you know in the spotlight and you know being investigated by police, and now uh, you know uh, sitting with 22 civil suits uh, in his back pocket. Let's say, for lack of a better term, um, the reason why it's made news now and surface is because last week Watson was traded to the Cleveland Browns and signed a five-year, 230 million dollar deal, one of the richest deals in NFL history. And the Browns released a subsequent statement saying that they had, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that they've done a lot of their homework and research and a lot of extensive background work was done on this. They're very aware of the allegations uh, and they've been in contact with the league. And there's also provisions in his contract where if he is suspended for the, you know, the minimum sentence of six games, which is in line with other punishments that people have Gotten from the NFL for abusing women and children. We're going to get into that in a little bit because that is terrible. That I just said it's six games and not, and not a full year or banishment for life. But um, so Watson, the the Browns won't have to pay him out contractually certain amounts of money if he gets if he gets the punishment that they feel is going to come down just based upon the provisions that they put into this contractual language. Okay, so. I gave a quick summation there. I want to play a clip though from Watson's attorney. This was after um, the the, crim- the grand jury uh, convened and decided not to bring any criminal um, implications against Watson. This is what his lawyer, Rusty Harden. If you if that name sounds familiar, I'm going to tell you why in a sec. But his lawyer, Rusty Harden, uh, w- was outside the courthouse with Deshaun Watson. They both gave a quick speech. But take a listen to what Harden said here. I I want y'all to go back to whether this began and I continuously and our team said we welcomed and wanted police. Involvement. We wanted thorough police investigations. We begged these women if they believed that he had committed a crime and he had done what they were saying, they ought to go to the police. That's what everybody that's a victim of one of these things or believes they are. That's where it should start is with the police. And so really, they only made these criminal complaints after we continued to urge them to do so. They did so. They were listened to. And we were vindicated and the sensed that what we believed would happen, that if law enforcement thoroughly looked at these matters, that we'd have the result we had today. Uh, I alluded to Rusty Harden earlier, famous attorney out of the Houston area. If you know sports, maybe you don't even need to know sports. I'm going to give you some examples of cases that his clients have either gotten off uh, on. Uh, Roger Clemens is one, obviously, when Clemens perjured himself before Congress over alleged steroid use. Uh, he also successfully represented Victoria Osteen. You may know her husband, Joel Osteen, in a civil lawsuit by a Continental Airlines flight attendant that claimed that she had been pushed by Osteen and she sought civil damages. So he's had a bunch of different clients in the sports space, specifically uh, Scottie Pippen, another famous one, Wade Boggs, the former third baseman for the Red Sox and Yankees, So, and Kurt Bush. Who was accused of domestic abuse against his former girlfriend? Kurt Bush is obviously a NASCAR driver. For those of you NASCAR fans out there, so Rusty Hardin, uh, pretty big, a pretty big gun, uh, hired legal gun to come in here. So Nick, um, there's been a lot made about this. It's it's tough for me because you know I, you and know, I both raising little girls here. Um, twenty two girls is or twenty two women, excuse me, is a lot of accusations. That's a lot of accusations. One, two, uh, come on, 22. At, at some point where there's smoke, there's fire. What I want to get into is um, not so much Deshaun Watson. We, we never get into the sports part of this, what he means for the trade to Cleveland, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody cares about that from a societal level. The societal question is how can a person at a private company work when he is literally the subject of a criminal investigation, and now is facing civil litigation of 22 lawsuits from women alleging sexual misconduct or allegations of sexual misconduct. So I want to get your take about that. But before I do that, you know, Rusty Hardin mentioned something there about, they highly recommended that women go to the police. And these women did go to the police. And there was a lot of he said, she said within this, which is why I think the grand jury decided not to bring any criminal jar- any criminal charges forward right now, doesn't mean that they can't on certain, some of the other allegations by the women. So stay tuned for more on that. But I was listening to my former friend, uh, she's not former friend, I mean, former colleague, she's still a friend, but Michelle Beadle over at ESPN when I used to work with her at Sports Nation. And she said something on her podcast the other day that kind of struck a nerve. And it was very like, you're right. But when you hear it from the group affected, I think it's more impactful. Take a listen to what Michelle said.
2: It seem like anywhere else in the world are we so quick to just let a man do gross things, right? Like we will excuse it if he can throw a ball, run fast, make a shot, hit a ball, whatever. We excuse all of it. What are we doing? Deshaun Watson doesn't know you. He doesn't give a damn about you. You don't know him. And even if he was able to meet you, he still wouldn't care. But you're willing to put your name on the line and your integrity to defend a man who you don't know what he did. But I'm assuming you do have women in your life. And let's just say one of these women was one of the 22. And you're going to tell me that because he wasn't criminally charged, he's cleared. He's done nothing wrong. 22 is a lot of smoke. There's at least a little bit of a fire right there. The 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 quickness with which we just throw away all of these women is disgusting.
5: She goes on more to say about we all have you know uh, w- women in our lives from moms, daughters, girlfriends, wives, etc. Um, I highly recommend you take a listen to her podcast. Shout out to you, Michelle, um, former ESPN. Now she's over at the Athletic, uh, Nick. So. I gave the, the totality of the uh, the 36,000 airplane view, as we like to say here on the show, about not only what Watson's going through, but then the overall societal question. The people that listen to this show that maybe don't follow sports, hey man, uh, should somebody get $230 million off of being potentially sued 22 times by 22 women alleging sexual assault and also the cops were investigating you? Like <laughs> America, freedom, huh? Uh, your takeaways when you heard about the, the contract and then also no criminal
4: charges filed. And then what you make of it overall. Yeah, it's I mean, we, I said this at the top. Um, you, you should need a woman in your, in your life to recognize that when 22 of them say that a, a person has done them wrong, uh, committed sexual assault or sexual harassment. Um, it's been basically outright creepy to them, you know, as, as Michelle was saying, believe them. You know, you said, he said, she said, that's the trope we often use. Well, it's technically he said. And if you were watching me, you'd see me say she said like 22 times on my hands. The preponderance of that makes you has to make you think that something obviously happened. The other conversation here is, well, the person was not found guilty per se. And and courts are important. We just talked about a Supreme Court justice nomination earlier. Um. But I would I would ask someone in all seriousness: Are courts really sympathetic to women? Like does <laughs> does the history of the justice system in America, as it relates to sexual assault, give you any indication that the court system is favorable toward toward women? I, I have a problem with that. So, being able to put aside the fact that he's not a criminal per se, or at the moment, I like Mike has brought this up both in text and here, uh, the fact that anything could change, a criminal charge could eventually come. Um, this, the, the sad fact is, sad, I, I don't know what you would call it, is Deshaun Watson is better at his job or is more profitable to his company, which is now the Cleveland Browns, than maybe you or I are to our respective companies. And this is true for almost anyone listening to this program. You know, Deshaun Watson is one of 32 quarterbacks 32 people in a position that do their job better than almost anyone else. Although I will mention that some quarterbacks are backups who are quite mediocre. And there's a really good one who used to play for the 49ers that is not with a job right now. But I'll leave that alone. Yes, um, yeah. So it's it's just it's a matter of some it's a matter of someone being viewed profitably to the point where the public outcry of that signing or that trade, or actually this was both in this case is not loud enough over the sound of those dollars coming in and the sound of cheers that you hope to get if Deshaun Watson helps win you a Super Bowl. The thing, and this is the hypocrisy I'm going to bring up to sports fans in general, particularly the Browns fans. There will be some boos when when Watson takes the field this season, eventually after the suspension. By the way, the suspension is an interesting poison pill, that part of the contract, because basically it's a guarantee he's going to get suspended for conduct detrimental to the league. Which, which, so, hold on, let me interrupt you right there, which makes
5: zero sense to an outside observer. So you're paying this guy with a huge caveat that says, when you get suspended, mm-hmm. we still got your back and we won't pay you out anything up until that point. Yep that th- That would not happen in any other line. Of work, or maybe it would at the CEO level for certain companies. We have seen some precedent for that, but like that wouldn't happen for any Joe Schmo for you and I working at the respective companies we work at where we, they know we have allegations of this. They know that potentially something could happen to us (laughs) and they're like, we'll wait for you. We'll we'll wait that year.
4: I mean, come on. Some employees are simply worth it. You know, I'm thinking about some of the ridiculous things we saw from Elon Musk, some of the things he's tweeted, some of the things he's said. The board of Tesla never got rid of him, and they could have. I mean, we saw it with Steve Jobs in the, 90, in the 90s, right? Like a board has the ability to throw out someone if they want to, even the founder of a company. But Musk is valuable to Tesla, just like Watson is to the Browns. We If the Browns somehow win a Super Bowl, spoiler alert, folks, they won't because it's the, the Browns. Um, if that happens, though, ask yourself for the city of Cleveland are you all not coming to that parade? Come on, they're, they're going to come. This has right. always been the problem with sports, and I'll you know I'll, I'll save you all the venting session here about owners and the why I have so many issues with the, the National Football League. But they will treat; they don't care about fans. They care; they play the long game because if this works and they win a championship, all is forgiven. That's what this is. Watson is better at his job than almost most of us. The two of us doing this show, although I would argue that you Mike and our pretty good at our jobs, right? Um. Watson allegedly is good enough in his that the Browns are willing to make this investment. But that whole thing about the contract is fascinating. Um, And not to mention the other parts of this too, Watson had immense power in this situation because he has no trade clause. So teams are basically going before him, willing to say, look, I know you were not found guilty. Um, You're probably going to get your ass sued off in civil hearings, but that's okay. But Watson got to choose the team that's the even wilder part. Think of, the, uh, think of the power that this person has despite 22 allegations from women that in the end, Watson got to choose his team and got to, is about to get paid. Uh, am I surprised by this? No, because we've seen numerous examples in that league and in other sports leagues, shout out to Trevor Bauer, of guys who managed to make money doing heinous things, particularly to women. And it comes back to my premise that I said at the beginning, we don't treat women. We don't treat women fairly in this country. We will find ways to minimize what happens to them. Even if 22 of them come forward and say something was done to them. I will
5: say one thing and you brought in Trevor Bauer. For those of you don't know who that is a picture on the Los Angeles Dodgers, who's currently sitting out as well because of uh, a a domestic dispute, I believe, or or allegations of, of sexual assault himself. Um, the Major League Baseball has had a few instances of domestic violence recently involving some players, and those players have been suspended for the year. You know, like th- there's, there's a couple different instances. You could look this up. I, I forget which of the players were suspended, but the argument always goes back to um, the team that that person played for. You're still rooting for that team. You know, my wife asked me a while back, the Raiders needed a running back and Kareem Hunt was available, but there's a video that surfaced of Kareem Hunt
4: kicking a woman. Would I still cheer for that team if they signed Kareem Hunt? I think I told this story before. I think I said this to Lakia when she was on um, way back when about the Red Sox. I took a break from cheering for the Red Sox after they went to see Trump in 20, uh, 2019 because right. they won the World Series in 2018. I took a couple of years and then you know decided to decided to come back. It's not like I forget, but as a fan, I'll opt out and I'll, I'll opt in. Uh, and I think that's what we all do You know to that question. Yeah, Mike, I have so many issues with the league. If the Raiders had taken Deshaun Watson, do I walk away? I'm confident in saying yes, I would have.
5: Yeah, I'm not answering that. I, I, I I'm not. I was <laughs> just at the. the point. I was this is not right
4: or wrong. Like this yeah. is like where I stand. This Is where you stand. It's and neither decision is the right decision. But as a fan, Correct. you have to you have to make that choice. You've got to decide what is your tipping point. Yeah, and and let me
5: let me clarify because I know a few of you that listen to me are going to text me after this. So <laughs> obviously, I do not condone domestic violence, and I didn't want Deshaun Watson. You know that I got the text exchange saved. So, but um, <laughs> receipts. But, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I got the receipts, but um, but it is it is it's true. You know, I Stephen A. Smith and and Molly Kerm were talking about this on First Take, and and Stephen A. To his credit, asked the women on the panel like what, what, what do you guys want us to do? Like, because it's true. Like you can move the needle in terms of dollars. You can take time off um, and say, you're not going to support that team X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, like you just send, you know, people are have short-term memories. Everybody does. So they're going to move past this and the owners are playing the long game because they know if Mike Leon does if Mike Leon and Nick Severi jump ship, they'll gain somebody else. Somebody else who will say Deshaun Watson's being canceled. And the reason why I say that was because Trevor Bauer, funny enough, tweeted that to Deshaun Watson saying, I'm glad they didn't cancel you. Uh, again, I don't think he knows what canceling means, but we can get into that in another part of the show. If if uh, you're interested in learning a little bit more about the Deshaun Watson stuff, The Athletic did a great piece on this. I mentioned B- Michelle Bido's podcast on there, but check out. All the stuff that those writers over at the Athletic have been doing. One more point for Mister Zaveri before
4: we sign off here. Yes, yeah, you know, we talked. We talked about lawyers, um, and you know, Mike had talked about Rusty Harden, you know, Watson's attorney. I'll also talk about Tony Busby, who's the attorney for the twenty, who represented the 22, 22 victims, right. who had said that the Browns nor any other team approached him, That's and right. he simply said, had they had done so, they would have learned something that perhaps would have made them wonder. Is this signing and trade worth it? And that story comes from uh, SI.com Sports Illustrated.
5: Yeah. See, and that there in that, I'm so glad you said that because right there and the Browns released a statement saying they did their due diligence. What due diligence? You didn't talk to the other side of this equation. That's what media comes to saying. Yeah. Right. And and the people that are, are actually affected by this. So more on this story as it develops. We'll see what happens with Watson. Uh, speaking of stories. You want to check out our YouTube channel, video interviews. We have stories on there. We tell stories. We interview people for a living. Check out our YouTube channel. Can we please talk? Audio podcast platforms. Thank you to everybody across whatever podcast platform listen to us. Please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review and comment, please. It really helps in the end. Shout out to ACAS, our hosting platform. As always, you can donate to this program so we continue to bring you great content week in and week out. As always, I am Mike Leon.
4: Rather be a girl, dad, and a husband, and all for the empowerment of women everywhere. I'm Nick Savary.
5: That's right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.
7: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.